Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for giving us the opportunity to study this book from front to back in in such an in-depth way. Our minds, Father, can't remember everything, but we can, Father, know that you've planted in our heart what we need. And we can expect that when the moment requires, you will recall, bring, bring to mind and help us recall what we must take out of this book. I pray, Father, that my teaching has been according to your instructions, according to your will, in the power of your Spirit. I pray that our ears have been open, that our hearts have been made ready for all that you've delivered over these last years as we've studied it. I also pray, Father, that the extended time in this book has only added to our appreciation of the depths of your word. That rather than being fatigued and worn out through a long study, we've been energized to see just how much awaits us in your word every time we open its pages. And as we finish, Father, I pray that it sets our mind and our hearts to study and to learn even more. For if one book of 66 can hold so much, how much more is waiting for us? I thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us in the way you have taught. And I pray that today and in next week, we would see it as you intend, in the fullness of all that you've given. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, I think it was a week or two ago, roughly half of the book of Genesis is dedicated to the messy, complicated life of Jacob. And so as we finish the book of Genesis, we're effectively finishing the life of Jacob. He's the final patriarch, the last of three. He's the man who gives birth to the entire nation of Israel through his 12 sons. And as we've watched him develop and grow over the years, we remember some of the good and some of the bad. We remember he's a man who liked to rely on deceit rather than entrusting in God and in God's work. He frequently brought his family members a lot of misery because of his bad decisions along the way. And yet, in the course of his life, he also demonstrated remarkable growth, remarkable maturity, particularly in the later years of his life. He relied on God, for example, in protection in the face of enemies at times. We saw him worshiping God in the midst of trial and calamity. He never lost faith in God's promises. And God has blessed him tremendously. In fact, by his own words, later in the scripture this morning, you'll see that he believes he was blessed greater than all of his forefathers, more than Abraham, more than Isaac. It's so encouraging to see Jacob in such a good place at the end of his life. Friends, you and I want to have a testimony that we were in a good place with the Lord at the end of our life. May we end well, not just start well. It's a reminder that the Lord holds out the promise of a blessing of sanctification to all of us. Not a guarantee, but the opportunity and the blessing that accompanies it. That as we walk with the Lord, we grow more like him, which is a simple way of saying sanctification. We earn our merit badge, so to speak by how we experience the discipline of the Lord in the course of our mistakes, and then how we grow to learn from those experiences and become more like Him as a result. But the key in all of that is to remain in the walk, which is the testimony of Jacob, remaining in the Lord's rest, in His care while you endure a trial, trusting that He who brought you in to that trial will bring you through it. In the past, we've said it required the Lord to turn an Abram into an Abraham, That we start as Abram and by God's grace, we can become Abraham as a picture of the man who can move from pagan worship to the man who can become the friend of God, according to Scripture. Well, if that's true, 
It also took the Lord to turn a disobedient Jacob into an obedient Israel. And God can do the same for us. And in chapter 49, as Jacob nears death, he's ready to transfer the inheritance to the sons, as we've seen. And in probably the most dramatic way we'll see in the entire story of Jacob, he demonstrates at the end of his life the kind of maturity, the kind of stability and faith that has come now to mark the man Israel. In contrast to the man Jacob, because in this chapter, before he dies, Jacob is going to pronounce a prophetic blessing on each of his 12 sons. He's already blessed, if you remember, the two adopted sons that he brought in from the family of Joseph. So they won't be included in this week's chapter. But for the remaining sons, including Joseph, he now gives that blessing that a father gives upon his deathbed. And the reason Joseph is included here now, even though his sons already received a blessing, is because this blessing goes far beyond merely transferring material wealth to the next generation. That was accomplished for Joseph in the form of his sons. No, this is a moment in which Jacob is going to reveal distant events prophetically concerning the tribes that these sons come to produce. And Joseph's place in the family is significant prophetically. So because of Joseph's importance, he will still be included today. So as we leave chapter 48 and enter chapter 49, we are virtually in the same moment. Jacob worshiping at the bed on his staff, so weak he can barely see, knowing that his days are growing to a close and blessing Joseph's sons. Well, that's the same moment we're in now. And in particular, we're going to look today at what Jacob says to each of his sons, noting that they're not only speaking about certain people, but also tribes and the future of those tribes prophetically. When you take all of what we're going to see today in chapter 49 and put it together, you find one of the most important, one of the most remarkable chapters in the book of Genesis for what it says about not only the future, but also what it says about Jacob as a man who could be used by God in this way. Let's start where the chapter starts. Verse one. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Now, I'm pausing there because I want to take what we're given and let it set up what comes next. Because as the chapter begins, we understand Jacob summons all his sons. He brings all of the sons of Israel into his room together. You can imagine them, I guess, arrayed around the bed in a circle of some sort, all standing there. And then look at what he says. He says, I'm going to pronounce a prophetic blessing upon you. Now, understand the blessing that a father or patriarch would give to his sons. That was common. Every family might expect to have a moment like this at some point. What's different about this moment is that Jacob is the representative of God on earth in this day. And as the patriarch fulfilling that role, he speaks with the authority of God as the spirit drives him to do so. And here he is about to speak the words of God concerning the future of these tribes. That's not what every father had the chance to do. This is unique. And I want you to notice he says, these things I will say concern events that will befall you, meaning collectively Israel, the nation. And then he adds, in the days to come. Now, in my English translation, that obscures the real meaning of the Hebrew, because the words there in Hebrew literally mean what will befall Israel in latter days. Or another way to translate it would be in the days of the end. In other words, Jacob is speaking about what will come upon Israel at the end of this age, leading up to the arrival of Messiah in the kingdom, what we call the messianic or millennial kingdom. 
So he's speaking far beyond the lives of these men, far beyond the immediate history of their family. He's thinking throughout the history of God's plan for Israel as he speaks these words. So he's going to speak prophetic blessing concerning the tribe of Israel that comes from each son. By the way, this isn't unique to to Jacob. We've seen this happening in the book of Genesis before. We remember Noah speaking prophetically concerning his sons and his grandson Canaan particularly. And Abraham spoke prophetically concerning Ishmael about having 12 kings come from him, speaking of the Arabs. In all cases, whenever we see this, we're watching the Lord moving by his spirit in the life of these men to reveal his plans. Why is God doing this this way? Because in this age, there is no written word of God as far as we know. There's not the revelation of Christ, certainly. We don't have the apostles and all their teaching. This isn't a time and an age in which God spoke directly through men in this way concerning his work. It also reminds us that the patriarchs had this important role as prophet in their day. That's why when you hear Israel speaking of their forefathers, they speak of those men as prophets. So these words are the divinely inspired revelation of God and his plans for each of the tribes of Israel. So you have the background. Let's go look at each one in turn. Let's begin with Reuben, where Jacob begins, the firstborn son from his wife Leah. Verses 2 through 4. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Well, let's start with the order. Jacob doesn't proceed in birth order. Now, granted, Reuben was the firstborn, but as we move through the list, you'll quickly find that he departs from the exact birth order of these sons. He chooses a slightly different methodology. He goes in the order of his wives. So he'll give all of the children of Leah, then all of the children of the concubines, and then finally all the children of Rachel. So when he starts with a given wife, he goes through all of her children and then moves to the next wife. Now, under normal circumstances, you would have expected in a family like this that the oldest son, Reuben, would have been the child to receive the birthright, for one, and then with that, the best blessing that the father could offer to any of his children. But instead, Reuben's given a rebuke, and that's the only way to see this. It's not a blessing in the traditional sense of the word. It's a rebuke. And it comes as a result of Reuben's earlier mistakes, the one that Jacob reminds him of here. Jacob says first to Reuben, you were my firstborn, and as that, you were the one who was the beginning of my strength in terms of my fathering of children. You were the beginning of it. You were positioned by your birth order. You were positioned to be the preeminent son. You had first shot at it. Everything was lined up for you, Reuben. You had the opportunity by your birth order to have received the greatest blessing I could give you. But you forfeited that opportunity. In Hebrew, Jacob says to Reuben that you are boiling over like water. That's the literal expression in Hebrew. I think of a pot of water left to boil too much and it just starts to spill over and it's coming out of the pot everywhere. That suggests something about Reuben. He's uncontrolled in his lust and he's undisciplined, uncontainable by his own desires. He was disqualified from receiving the preeminent position, the blessing of the birthright, because of his lust for one of Jacob's wives, and we know the story of what happened there. That prophecy from Jacob concerning Reuben, it's a reminder for all of us, not just for the men, but for all of us, 
that if we do not act in a disciplined manner, if we don't discipline our flesh, if we don't control our lusts, if we let that stuff run amok, it risks disqualifying us from the blessings of God in our service to him. It's a disqualifier, ultimately, if God chooses to act against us. Now, our new birth in Christ gives all of us a new opportunity. By definition, we're new creatures. The old has passed away, the new has come, and we start, as it were, fresh from God's point of view, serving Him in that newness of life. And our service to God brings with it the potential that He would reward us according to His grace and mercy for those things we do in following Him faithfully. And that's the promise He holds out to all of us. But we can, according to Scripture, disqualify ourselves from the prize. Paul talks about it himself, wishing to not be disqualified from that prize, the the rewards God holds for our service. We can be disqualified if we allow our faith to become shipwrecked, which is another phrase from Paul's letters. Shipwrecked in that we go off the path and we end up on the rocks of our lust or our lack of discipline in our lifestyle. And don't be naive. Don't think that God won't hold us accountable for those things. Reuben may not have given much thought to his father's reaction before he chose to go lie with his father's wife. But take note, Jacob paid attention. Jacob didn't forget. And when the time came, Jacob held Reuben accountable. If Jacob can do that, you think our father in heaven is capable of doing that? Now, having said that, if we have some experience in our past for which we are not proud of, does that mean we have no reason to persevere moving forward? Does that mean that all bets are lost? So what's the point at this stage of our life? Absolutely not. God is a God of mercy as much as he is a God of justice. And while we may fear his judgment for what has happened, don't let that cause you to think that there isn't an opportunity for God to show grace and mercy in that past experience and let us continue to serve him in the time that remains. Don't give up. That's what the enemy would love us to think. Don't give up. Now, prophetically, when God looks to Reuben through Jacob and he speaks this blessing to Reuben, It reflects something of Reuben's personality. In fact, commentators have long noted the statements concerning each son are not only representative of their individual character, as in this case, Reuben being a man of lust. It's remarkable how much what's said about these men typifies the character and nature of their entire tribe historically. It's almost as though God has purposely put in the foreground at the beginning of each tribe a man who by his nature comes to be the poster child for their whole progeny, for all that might come after him. It seems designed by God to make a point. And in the case of Reuben, this is a tribe that never amounts to much of anything in the history of Israel. They never have a king. They never have a prophet. They never have a judge. They never have any significant military leaders come out of this tribe. It is a tribe that never produces anyone of significance in the life of Israel. In fact, Moses in Deuteronomy, when he prays for the 12 tribes, Moses actually prays that Reuben's tribe won't disappear because they're shrinking in numbers so fast the fear is they might just go away altogether. This is a tribe that is not amounted to the preeminent opportunity that they had in the birth order of Reuben. Moving forward, verses 5 and 6 and 7, talking now about two sons, Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let my glory be united, or let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. 
I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Well, next, Jacob deals with his second and third sons, and they are forever linked because of this experience he references in Shechem. These are the brothers who went in to supposedly defend the honor of their sister Dinah, but in the course of that event, they murdered all of the inhabitants of Shechem. It says they had vengeance and wrath in their heart and they reacted in anger and they murdered men. And particularly, you want to see the, a window into the heart of these men? You really want to know what kind of men they were? Well, consider what Jacob says they did to the oxen. You would think, well, what's the big difference? They're killing people. Yeah, but you know what they did to the oxen? They didn't kill them. According to Jacob, they lamed them. They literally cut the tendons on the back of the legs so the animals would be useless to anyone. Didn't make any use of them themselves. Just maimed them. You know, people who have a heart to do that kind of thing show you the kind of ruthlessness, the kind of evil that was behind that act in that day. And so the Lord, speaking through Jacob, says that sin will receive a punishment, not just to these men, but in the history of Israel. The judgment falls not only on them, but on their seed in that the nation of Israel would see these tribes scattered. Now, he's not referring strictly to the scattering of Israel that we know happened historically. He's speaking more to the way they lived in the land. Neither Simeon nor Levi receive any land of their own. We know the Levites are scattered both in the cities of refuge and then they live in the temple. They have never been given any land in the nation of Israel. And Simeon, likewise, they were actually absorbed within another tribe, within Judah. They didn't have their own land. They were like you would have a little town living inside of Austin. In a similar sense, they had a little settlement within the larger area of Judah, but no land of their own. Now, when God pronounces these kinds of judgments through Jacob on Reuben, on Levi and Simeon, for example. Is God acting unfairly, taking one man's action and propagating it all the way through the history of these tribes? Well, historians, as I've said, noted how each of these individuals come to typify their own people so that the anger, the the wrath, the uncontrolled lust of these men seems to show up over and over again in their respective tribes. Well, if that is true, as the scriptures show us, then it would tell us that God is protecting Israel from these men. By ensuring that these men and the defects that characterize their personality have not made its way into leaders within the nation of Israel, not made its way into judges, not made its way into prophets, so that the men who God would use to counsel and guide and lead this people would come from better stock than the ones who have started in these respective tribes. Now, that didn't stop immoral kings. We know that. But it shows God at work to protect the nation, at least to a degree. So 8 through 12 now, we get to one of the longer passages on Judah. Beginning in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garment in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Well, now at this point, before Jacob speaks concerning Judah, you have to wonder if maybe Jacob's sons start to fidget around the bed, right? Because everything Jacob has said up to this point hasn't gone very well for the brothers, right? Between Reuben and Simeon and Levi, they're starting to wonder, do I really want to hear what's coming next? And in fact, Judah's blessing is the first true 
blessing that he offers any of his sons. The first positive thing that's come out of his mouth. It also happens to be the longest blessing tied with what he says for Joseph. In verse 8, we begin, Jacob awards Judah with the prominence over his brothers. Here we see Judah receiving the right to rule. This is the closest we get to a patriarch coming into the nation after the three patriarchs. We're not saying Judah is the patriarch, because if you notice, he doesn't award it to the man, he awards it to the family, to the tribe. What we're saying, though, is for the sake of this nation, when it's time to raise up leaders over these people, the leaders will come from this tribe. And in this case, an entire tribe now has the prominence. The tribe of Judah, historically, is the one in which you see all of the kings coming up, the ones that God actually appoints, the ones who should be ruling. And we clearly see that the Lord here intended to bring kings over Israel. He speaks to it even now. So that when you get to 1 Samuel and you see Samuel being told by God, it's not your fault they asked for a king. They've not rejected you. They've rejected me, which makes it sound as though they were wrong to ask for a king. What we come to see, knowing God planned for kings and planned for them to come from Judah, is that the problem wasn't that they wanted a king. The problem was they rejected the Lord's rule in order to have a king. The problem was they were vain. They wanted it for the wrong reasons. They wanted it in the wrong timing. And so God said, fine. And he gave them a king, not from Judah, but from Benjamin. A king that looked the part. Tall, handsome, warrior. But everything on the inside was wrong. And it wasn't according to God's purpose. So that they could understand their folly before he gave them who he intended, the king David. And of course, Jacob speaks promises here that eventually become fulfilled in Christ. That's evident. Could you not see that as well? He says that a descendant of Judah, the Messiah, will eventually be the one out of Judah to rule not only Israel, but the whole world. You just saw the assignment of the seed promise. Remember, we've talked all along about the birthright going to Joseph through his sons. And then the question became, well, which of the tribes will receive the other part of the inheritance? The seed promise, the promise that a Messiah would come. Well, here you see it assigned to Judah. And then moving on, verse 9, Judah is promised great power. And in that, he's compared to a lion. Now, in that culture, the most powerful animal anyone could name, and I think maybe today it's still a reasonable association, the most powerful animal they would have known on the land, certainly, is a lion. And so Judah receives this great accolade that he is comparable to a lion in his power and in his mastery over all things, in his authority within the kingdom. All of that a fitting picture for Messiah, who we know is called the Lion of Judah for that very reason. Then verse 10, the kingship of Judah is further revealed. It speaks of scepters and staff. Think of it in simple terms. The scepter would be a symbol of royal power. And he says that scepter will never depart Judah. Now, how do I understand that verse when I know that there were times in the nation of Israel's history in which people took the role of king over Israel, particularly in the northern kingdom, not having come from the nation of Judah, from the tribe of Judah. Well, the answer is that not everyone who calls themselves king are those God has appointed to be king. And as a result, there were those who would usurp the power and try to project themselves as king. That doesn't mean that they were the one God had appointed. In God's plan, kings out of Judah will rule over Israel. The rest are posers. And one day, the king will rule over Israel. In the verse I refer to, verse 10, you see the word Shiloh? Some have just assumed that's another name for Jesus. But the word in Hebrew is actually a real word. It's not a name. It's a word with with real meaning. And the translation of that word would be he whose right it is. The one who has the right. So it really should be translated 
the one who has the right to rule, when the one who has the right to rule comes, then the scepter will not depart from him. In fact, in the Septuagint, in the Syriac, and in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they all say it that way. He who has the right, not the word Shiloh literally. So it means that in God's plan, preeminence over Israel rests in Judah. And men in the nation of Judah will have that right to rule over Israel to a point, but only until the one whose right it is to rule comes. And once he comes, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, no one else but he will rule from that point forward. And that day was achieved in Jesus' first coming. It is no coincidence, folks, that there is no king in Israel, nor has there been since Jesus departed the earth. That when the temple was destroyed and the city was laid low, that there has not been, nor will there be, anyone who rises to the authority and calls themselves king in Israel again until Christ's return. And then finally, Judah's family will be very prosperous. And some of the ways that's demonstrated here are very colloquial. For example, they're going to tie their donkeys to choice grapevines. Now, why is that a symbol of prosperity? Well, a grapevine is not a very strong vine. And they're valuable things. You don't destroy a grapevine if you can avoid it. If I take a donkey or a foal, an animal that's typically hard to control, likely to yank, they'll pull on it. They'll destroy the vine. Unless the vine is so big, it's so old, it's so prosperous that you could... Literally tie an animal to it and not worry about the vine. That's a symbol of just how prosperous they were going to be. And it says similar things when it says they're going to wash their clothes in crushed grapes or in the blood of grapes or wash their linen in wine. Not because that's a good way to treat your clothing, but because it's a sign that they have so much wine, it's like water. And then the milk. If you drink so much milk, it makes your teeth white. That's an awful lot of milk, which, which means an awful lot of cattle, which means an awful lot of prosperity. That's the point. Sort of like a land flowing with milk and honey. It's the same concept. So Judah is going to indeed be a blessed tribe, and they always have been. That's why the southern kingdom is so dominated by them and why the nation is often summarized as the the nation of Judah. They'll have leadership qualities and they'll have great wealth. Moving on, now we get to those combination of several sons, six of them, each with very brief mentions from 13, uh, verse 13, all the way through verse 21. Zebulun will dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be towards Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people and one of the tribes of Israel, as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. For your salvation, I wait, O Lord. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. Naphtali Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Starting with Zebulun, Jacob says his tribe will dwell at the seashore and have his border with Sidon, which was a Phoenician land, historically. There's only one problem with that prophecy. When the nation of Israel crosses the Jordan under Joshua and they end up in the land and Joshua awards each of the tribes their respective territory in the land, Zebulun doesn't end up near the sea. He's landlocked and he's not on the border of Sidon. Well, then how can this be true? Well, if I go to Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 48, where he speaks concerning the state of Israel in the kingdom to come in the time when Christ has come back. And set up his kingdom on earth. And Israel is set up as the chief nation on the earth. And Jesus sitting on the seat of David in Jerusalem is ruling over the world from that place. When I get to chapter 48 of Ezekiel and he describes the allotment of the land to Israel in that day. 
A nation whose borders stretch from the sea all the way to the Euphrates and from Damascus all the way to the brook of Egypt. In that day, this is exactly where Zebulun is. Which tells us all by itself that when it says these instructions concern the latter days, Jacob is looking very far into the future. At least a thousand years plus from where we are even today. This is further proof that we are looking at God speaking prophetically. That pithy description of Issachar as a strong donkey lying down between sheep pens and so on, that communicates an awful lot about his character and the nature of his tribe. It says, among other things, he's physically strong. He's a brute. He's given over to manual labor. That's his preferred service, is in the daily efforts of manual labor. That as a strong worker, that's how he'll make his living. But... It says he has a tendency to lie down. We would say lie down on the job. That there's a distinct lazy streak in this tribe or in this man. And above all, he's not particularly ambitious. He's content with the nine to five laborer's job. Which is not to say there's anything wrong with that contentment, mind you. But it just reflects he will not aspire to much. And in verse 15, Jacob says this tribe will see, effectively the words mean he will see good land. Land that's worth working when they reach Canaan. And then from that point of view, he's not going to seek any more. It's like once they've seen it, they said, this is all I could ever dream of. And they're ready to stay within those bounds. They're strong. They work the land, etc. But as we look at the history of that tribe in the nation of Israel, what we find is that they began to love the land too much. They loved the produce. They loved the lifestyle. They loved the material benefits of working the land. In fact, they love it so much that they eventually are willing to go into slavery in order to maintain the land. Slavery to Canaanites. And as a result, they trade obedience to God for material pleasures of this life. There's a whole Sunday sermon on that, but we'll put it aside. Tribe of Dan is the next one, and this is another interesting case. The word Dan literally means judge and Jacob says, in keeping with the meaning of the name, that this will be a tribe that produces judges. In fact, they produce Samson, arguably the most prominent of the judges. Dan is also, though, the first tribe to practice idolatry in the history of Israel. And Dan begins a rebellion, ultimately, that leads to the split of Israel between the northern and the southern kingdoms. You think it's ironic or perhaps intentional that the tribe that has the prominent role of judging others is the tribe that falls first. They are the instrument of the enemy at times to bring Israel into idolatry and to eventually split the leadership of Israel. And that's what it means when it says they bite at the horse's heels. They cause the the animal, as it were, to fall backward. Interestingly, Dan is not listed among the tribes of Israel who are brought to faith in the time of tribulation among the 144,000. There's 12 tribes mentioned and there's 13 when you count them all. So somebody had to be missing. And in this case, back in chapter 7 of Revelation, it is... Dan that's missing. And commentators love to try to make sense of why they were left out and why someone else wasn't left out. I've had a few theories of my own, but I think in the way we often assume it to be a sign of punishment, we miss the point. There are 13 tribes, so there's always somebody missing anytime you see a list of the 12 tribes. By which one is missing, he's sending a message. And when Dan is missing, I believe it says a message concerning the purpose of those 144. Remember, when Jesus walked the earth, And people looked at him wondering, as Messiah, why did you come? Did you come to judge us? As they know, the Messiah has all judgment according to Scripture. And in the response to that, Jesus says this in John 12, 47. He says, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. 
I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now we know he's speaking about the mission of his first coming. He's not saying he was not willing to judge. He's certainly not saying he won't at some point judge. He's saying in his first coming, his mission was not to come with judgment, but with salvation. That remains the mission of the church until the second coming of Christ. So when Dan's name means to judge, then it strikes me as purposeful that he's left out of the 144,000 so that it's clear that the purpose in God selecting those Jews to begin another round of worldwide evangelism in the last days of tribulation is not for the sake of preempting his judgment or getting a head start on judgment. Quite the opposite. It's the last opportunity for salvation. And so when God chooses one to leave out, he leaves out the one whose name is inconsistent with the purpose of their calling. Not to Dan's shame, not to judgment, but to the message of his purpose. Jacob says Dan will await the salvation from the Lord. I love that ending. He says, despite all of Dan's failings, the fact that he trips up the nation, the fact that he starts rebellion, his tribe is nevertheless still included in those that enter into the kingdom. He's still part of Israel. He still receives the salvation of the Lord. He's not forgotten. Now, for the last three, Jacob says relatively little about Gad and Asher and Naphtali. We can summarize very briefly. Gad's territory was on the very eastern border of Israel. That means he was literally on the opposite side of the River Jordan. They were the eastern outpost of the nation in their day. And so they were vulnerable to raids from desert tribes and enemies. But they learned through that experience to become excellent warriors. They defended the eastern flank of Israel for many years. And this reference here to their being raiders of raiders indicates they often had the upper hand. Asher is given the best land. If you looked at the land of Israel geographically, Asher ends up with some of the very best land in the nation, very fertile ground. And that's why it says here that they come to enjoy very rich food. The literal Hebrew is oily food, which indicates how rich it was. And as a result, they become cooks. It says they provide to the kings the delicacies that they enjoy. They become a source for great delicacies of food. And lastly, Naphtali, it says their tribe will be like a doe, like a deer set loose. Now that's a reference to the way Naphtali's territory is very mountainous. And it's not about how they tiptoed over the mountain like a deer. It's not that literal. It's speaking to the nature of the people. When you live in a mountainous territory, I think of West Virginia, for example, you gain a certain degree of independence because other people don't try to encroach on that land. It's not very valuable. It's hard to get in and, and, and penetrate and conquer. So if you live in a mountainous region, you tend to remain very independent, like the Scots, for example. It's in your nature to think no one's going to come and touch your land. And so as a deer might be footloose and fancy free and without the concerns of defending their territory, it reflects the fact that these men in the tribe of Naphtali had a certain air of independence within the nation forevermore. Coupled with, it says, eloquence in speech. They were gifted with their words. What an interesting combination. Sounds like a patriot, doesn't it? Now, lastly, we move to Joseph, or next to last, Joseph, verses 22 through 26. Joseph is a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him, but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the God of your father who helps you and by the almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessing of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up 
to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May there be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Does that sound like the best thing he said so far? It should, because that's the best blessing right there. He uses the word like six times. This is a man who receives the richest blessing out of the father, out of Jacob. And that is in keeping with his birthright holding. Now, we understand the material blessings of the birthright skipped. Joseph went to his sons, but he still indirectly holds the birthright as a result. So the blessing, the best blessing goes with the birthright. And here you see it. So Joseph receives only the land in Shechem materially, but he gets the best blessing. Now, Jacob remembers the way Joseph was attacked in his blessing. He starts telling the story of how overly blessed Joseph is. He's like an orchard with trees that are so full, they're stretching out over the walls of the orchard. But he says he didn't start that way. He started being attacked. He started being attacked by his brothers, by Potiphar, going into prison. That's the story of Joseph. At the end of his life, he can look back and see that blessing. But at the beginning of his life, he had to wonder, didn't he? And in the end, as he became this powerful leader, pictured by the the firm bow and the strong arms, all of that pictures his strength at the end of his life, you can see Joseph's life is a divinely intended picture of Jesus. How do we see that? Well, notice in the second half of verse 24, after he said all this about Joseph's life, that he started as, as one who was a victim, he ended as one who was strong, and so on. At the end of verse 24, he says, It will be from the same hand of God that brought Joseph through these things that the Lord will bring the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Those are classic terms for the Messiah. So what Jacob is telling us prophetically is that Joseph's life, this life that is maligned at first but powerful at last, persecuted initially, triumphant in the end. That pattern, he's saying, is the same pattern by which God will bring the Messiah. He confirms for us that all the times I said, here's a picture of Joseph as Jesus. Here's another picture. Here's another picture. That was the right thing to do. That it was intended by God that Joseph would be such a picture. That he will have, as we know, a time of persecution followed by a time of glory in his own reign. Until it says he wears the crown on his head. Speaking of Christ. And then lastly, Benjamin, verse 27. Benjamin, it says, is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoils. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one, with a blessing appropriate to him. Benjamin, we're told, will be a warring tribe, which is exactly what we find historically. And they're often victorious in that warring. In fact, they're so successful, the prophecy says they'll destroy the enemy, the prey, in the morning, and then they'll divide the spoils in the evening, which means that Benjamin often took the lead in battle, and then when they won, those spoils became benefit for all of Israel, which is exactly what this says would happen. Among others that are produced out of the tribe of Benjamin that you would remember would include not only King Saul, but Jonathan, Mordecai, Esther, and, of course, the Apostle Paul. Isn't it interesting when you think of Apostle Paul's personality as it's reflected in his letters or in the story of Acts? Doesn't he really fit the picture of a tribe like Benjamin that is ravenous and goes out to devour his prey? And what God did was he took a man whose heart was wrong and hurtful and evil and turned it to a man who had the love for God and his word and yet used all of that same energy and used it in a better way, in a new way. That's what God can do. And then finally, verse 28, Moses finishes by confirming that all of the things Jacob just said were intended for more than just the boys. Look, it says, 
All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, everyone with a blessing appropriate to him, to the tribes, in other words. And then it comes to the end. Let's just finish with a a quick reading of the end of the chapter, watching as Jacob ends his life. Verse 29 through 33. Then he charged them and he said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave that is in it, purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So here's his last instructions. Very simple. Here's where I want to be buried. And he references the cave. This is the place, remember, that Abraham initially bought that has been used by the patriarchs ever since, not only for them, but also for their wives. I love this detail. He says, that's also the place I buried Leah. Have you noticed we never heard anything about her death? She just disappeared out of the pages of the, of the text. All of a sudden, here she is. We know she's dead. Secondly, we find out he buried her there. What's so fascinating about that is what she could never obtain in life, she found in death. Remember, what does she want more than anything else? To have Jacob do herself. Well, Rachel isn't buried in this cave, but Leah will be, and Jacob next to her. The two that maybe were intended to be together from the beginning. And then after he says all this to his sons, showing his faith again in that request, it says he picks his feet up. You can see it visually, right? Almost like a fetal position. Gets into the bed, curls up, and then it says he died. And this isn't some summary of some extended period of time. The Hebrew makes it clear it's all present tense. It's as if Jacob willed himself to death at that very moment, having done all that he needed to do. I wonder if the same spirit that revealed all those prophecies to Jacob also spoke to him concerning the time and manner of his death, so much so that he knew that his death was about to happen in that very moment. And when you consider all that happened to this guy and his amazing life, I wouldn't be surprised if that's true. And as you reflect on that, I love the ending of Jacob's life. If God can take a man like Jacob, a man who we know has historically schemed his way out of every situation, who was impatient, who tried to fix his own problems, who didn't rely on the Lord like he could, a man who is typically seen fighting and struggling against God rather than with him. That's why his name means the one who strives or struggles with God, Israel. That's the man God started with. If God can take a man like that and bring him to the point where he could be so in tune with God's spirit that he could speak with stunning clarity about future events and then... At the point when he's finished in the work God has for them, he can get in his bed, rest in God, and literally die. There's hope for all of God's children. If a man like Jacob can start so far from God and can end his life almost as if he was lying in God's hands. And he didn't get there on his own. He got there because God is patient. I'll end with a verse out of Jude. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, for all the words I could offer, Father, I ask for one thing. 
Make us like Jacob. Because we know we started like him. And some of us may still feel we are just like him. But we know you have the power to make us stand blameless. We ask, Father, that you would work with us, work with our mistakes, work with our impatience, work with our lack of faith. Work through your word and through the counsel of the Spirit and through the work and prayers of the saints. And, Father, bring us to the point where we curl up in your hands as Jacob did on his last day. Let us have the testimony that we ended well, no matter where we started. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.